Bible with you this morning. We're in Luke chapter 3. Thank you, choir. It's uh, it's always kind of... So that song, uh, there are several... Uh, oh, what a Savior that they did. There are several Southern Gospel groups that do that. And, and you may not believe this, but in 1995 and 96, I was a, a part of a Southern Gospel group I don't know why they asked me to be a part of them. I don't look Southern Gospel, you know. In the right clothes, I look like I just got out recently. Um, but, uh, yeah, this, this makes me remember a long time ago. I don't know why I told you that story, but I don't know why I told you that story. <laughs> I was just thinking about it because of that song. But anyway, okay, enough tomfoolery. If the only answer to humanity's sin problem was for God to send the eternally pre-existent Son, second person of the Trinity, very God of very God to earth, to absorb God's wrath for humanity and be a substitute in humanity's place, offering up the sacrifice of His sinless life for our forgiveness and performing the righteousness we lacked in order to be reconciled to God, then the sin problem must be an indescribably big problem. No other sacrifice could atone for our sins. Nobody else, nothing. No one else's goodness or righteousness could commend us to God. Only the Son of God could do this. Now, that may not be the shock for us that it was for Israel in the time of Christ. After all, they had been given the law. These had been God's people. He had granted them His own special promises that He'd given to Adam and Noah and Abraham. He'd chosen them out of all the nations of the world to be His own special people. He'd delivered them from slavery in Egypt, carried them through the Red Sea in the wilderness, providing them with food and water. He gave them the Ten Commandments and the sacrificial system. He led them into the Promised Land to possess Canaan for themselves. He raised up the dynasty of the great King David. And eventually, they ended up in exile in Babylon because of their disobedience. God enabled them to return to their land, but the new temple they built paled so much in comparison to the original that the people wept after they built it when they saw it. And it turned out that even the punishment of exile did not purge the sin and idolatry from Israel. And by the time God caused the events that would bring His Messiah into the world that we've been going through here in the beginning of Luke, Israel was occupied by the most wicked and brutal empire that the world had ever known. The Roman Empire. The horrible beast or iron monster that Daniel saw in his dream in Daniel 7. The way back into Israel had become a wasteland for God to travel. The road was rocky and cracked. It was filled with mountains and valleys, spiritually speaking. That would make it very hard for God to be welcomed and received into His own city of Jerusalem once more and among the people he had marked as his own on the earth for that time. They, the way had to be prepared because human hearts are so wicked. They even had to be prepared in Israel. We will even reject the one who comes to save us. But God sent him anyway. And the last prophet of the old covenant era was sent to announce the arrival of God's Messiah to call Israel to repentance and preparation to receive 
their Savior. Some would, most would not, and still do not. Especially, however, the most religious, the most moral, reject Him. The ministry of John the Baptist sought to prepare the way in the hearts of Israel to receive their Messiah and Savior. And because this Jesus Christ fulfilled the law for us by His life, death, and resurrection, you and I are now free to love our neighbors as the proclamation of His work in us. Let me pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word this morning. I thank You for Your truth that You give to us in Christ, Your Son. Lord, I pray that You would help me preach this text in the way that You would have me, that You would enable me to bring out of it what You breathed into it for the sake of those who are here to listen. And God, I pray that You would help all to listen, to hear, to receive this Word for them. I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 3. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Idaria and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you remember from the first four verses of Luke how important it is for Luke to locate the person and work of Jesus in real time. Luke wants us to know precisely when Jesus came and accomplished His ministry as a matter of historical fact. These things happened. This Jesus existed. Tiberius Caesar succeeded Augustus in about A.D. 14. So if this is his 15th year, then it's about 29 A.D. when John the Baptist began his public ministry. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea from A.D. 26 to 36. The Herod who was Tetrarch of Galilee is Herod Antipas. His brother Philip was over Iteria and Trachonitis, northeast of Galilee. While his other brother Lysanias was located northwest of Damascus up in Syria. Annas had actually been removed as the high priest in A.D. 15, but he still managed to share power with his son-in-law Caiaphas. Luke will frame the ministry of John the Baptist as taking place within the reign of Herod the Tetrarch. Verse 1 and verse 19. He places all this within a Roman and a Jewish historical context. But where is the main um, grammatical clause in verses 1 and 2? Why are we being told all this historical information? So that we would know it was during this time, as history was running its course with its politics and intrigue and authorities, that there was something happening that actually had lasting meaning for the world. The Word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. The history of salvation was taking place. God's kingdom was coming near. God didn't need Rome to do that. He didn't need the permission of earthly kings or authorities, and He didn't search for the most visible place or that of the greatest reputation and influence. His Word came to who was basically a nomad out in the wilderness around Jerusalem. That, the text is saying, by the way it's constructed, is actually the big thing that was happening in the world around 29 A.D. God was about to speak again through a prophet. It had been over 400 years. The business of the world and its movers and shakers was only the backdrop for the arrival of God's Word in space and time. Now what does that tell us? 
that there is nothing more crucial or important that is ever happening in this world than the Word of God. A new era has dawned in the world. The Word God has for the world will now come through the prophet John the Baptist. He will continue the pronouncement first made by the angel Gabriel about the coming of the Christ. In verses 3 and 18, Luke summarizes the message of John as preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and as a proclamation of good news to the people. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet here in verses 4 to 6, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Isaiah prophesied of this moment and the ministry of John the Baptist. His voice is the voice that cried out in the wilderness with the word of God pronouncing that the Lord was coming. The king was on his way and Israel needed to prepare the way. In fact, all flesh was now going to see the salvation of God. The paths to the people of Israel and really to the whole world for God had been made crooked by sin and rebellion, by the rejection of God's Word. The roads in our hearts were and are filled with valleys and divots. There were all these high, rocky crags. The roads were crooked and rough. The way had not been made ready in Israel. That's why we get the word therefore here in verse 7. Because of what Isaiah prophesied, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's not very nice. Interestingly, we know, by the way, from Matthew's gospel, that, that the main target of that pronouncement of judgment, because that's what that is, was actually the scribes and Pharisees who had been actively rejecting the message of John the Baptist. So he calls them, you brood of vipers. Now snakes in Scripture have some traction. John is telling mainly these religious leaders that their refusal to recognize that they must have their own hearts prepared for the coming of the Lord through repentance, their rejection of that means that they are of their father, the devil. As Jesus would point out to a similar type of crowd in John 8, 39 to 47. And speaking of Jesus in John 8, notice that John the Baptist argues in the same way here for the depth of their sinfulness and the satanic nature of their trust in themselves. That's a satanic thing. You're of the devil when you would reject the Word of God. Especially His Word that says you need to repent of your sins and turn to Christ. They thought specifically that their Jewishness made them righteous enough for God. Just like that group to whom Jesus was speaking in John 8. Or at least many of them. But John tells them to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. There's a gap then between how righteous they think they are and the righteousness that God requires. What is the problem here in Israel, particularly among the religious leaders? Why does the way need to be prepared, we should be asking? Verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
They reject John's baptism for repentance because they don't think they need it. Later in Luke 7, 29 and 30, we'll read, And all the people and the tax collectors having heard, they acknowledge God as just being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the plan of God for themselves, not being baptized by him, by John the Baptist. After all, these men aren't Gentile sinners. They aren't as bad as the rest. They aren't like the rest of the you know, wicked, uncircumcised world that don't belong to Abraham. They don't need to get prepared for the Messiah by being baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. Their sins aren't that bad. In addition to that, they're Israelites, right? They could say, we have the law. We respect the law. They had their ritual washings according to the law. They've taken part in all the ceremonies. They're already clean. Isn't that interesting? The lack of awareness of your own wickedness before God makes you get annoyed at the message of repentance and salvation. You don't want to hear it. Tell me something else. Knowing the law, it's, it's, it's as if proximity to righteousness. Knowing the law, knowing that it's there, knowing the difference between right and wrong, or even just caring enough about right and wrong, somehow is enough to make us holy. Because you can always say, at least I don't look like that. Right? At least my sin is not like that or them. I know better. I care about pleasing God. I care about what's right and what's wrong. So for some reason in our human hearts, we take that as evidence that we're holy and acceptable to God. So when we hear all the time that we're sinners... Even if we have these things and have proximity to righteousness, we don't like that. Being circumcised as they were, as it meant at that time, doesn't make one righteous and sinless. God can raise up what the Israelites referred to as dead stones, those wicked Gentiles, rocks. He could raise them up to be His people if He wants to, which is exactly what Galatians says Jesus did. He made Gentiles the very sons of Abraham. Translation, God will decide who and what is righteous and what. The day of the Messiah, of the Messiah's coming is when God will reveal with His acts in verse 9 who is actually righteous and who is a hypocrite. One's attitude towards Jesus is what will determine that. John is heavily implying here. The fire of judgment is also about to sweep through Israel. Doing what Simeon said Jesus would do, reveal many hearts. Notice the difference of the response in the crowds in verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? When the prophet of God announces that the way has to be prepared for the Messiah, the proper response is, okay, what do I do? For Israel, prior to the Messiah's coming, it required John's baptism. But you see, John lists certain behaviors here, beginning in verse 11. And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? 
And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. John isn't teaching that that merits you righteous before God. John is teaching that those are the fruits of repentance. The fruits of repentance, not the source of repentance, not the means of repentance, the fruits of repentance. These are some of the specific things he's talking about when he says that in verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now, we're going to come back to that and focus there in just a few minutes. But the essence of what John is saying is this. The heart of those prepared to meet the Messiah, it wants to serve others. And notice it's not just Jewish people asking these questions. It's Roman soldiers too. The whole world needed to be ready for the Messiah, at least in some sense. Not just Israel, because He is the Savior of the world. God means to show His salvation to all flesh. That's becoming apparent in the ministry of John the Baptist. The whole world needed to be ready because no one was. So at this unique time in history, God has sent a prophet to clear the way for the word of the Messiah to sweep through Israel and eventually the whole world. How is it that the Roman soldiers can see their need and Israel's religious leaders cannot? Those that think they have something to hold on to as proof of their righteousness, whether it's being a Jewish person or your heritage or your traditions or your upbringing, whatever it is, or your own morality, those that think they have something to hold on to as proof of their righteousness that God has not said is proof of righteousness don't see the need to be reminded of their own sinfulness. That's what keeps the way from being prepared. A refusal to admit our sinful state. It's frustrating to those that think they're good enough. It's annoying to hear. What do they want to hear? Those that don't. They want to hear more instructions about how to be good. Because when they hear a command, they do it. The little they do have or think they have is apparently enough to even the balances. But they desperately needed the waters of John's baptism for repentance and forgiveness, Israel's religious leaders mainly. Now, of course, the people start thinking John must be the Messiah. He must be the Christ. He bears the word of God. He's a mighty prophet. He speaks powerful words of repentance. And he comes with this new baptism. Surely it's him. Verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now John isn't doing away with what we know as Christian baptism, New Testament baptism, but he is speaking about what is different when Jesus comes. His winnowing fork, verse 17, is in his hand. To clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John's baptism was to make ready for Jesus. The baptism of Jesus, being baptized into Jesus, shows what one was made ready for. Salvation through water or judgment by fire. Jesus Christ is God's Messiah. He is the Savior for all nations. There is no other. To reject Jesus is to reject salvation. John is basically saying, look, you're all going to get baptized by Jesus. The whole world. Every single person. You either get baptized through the Holy Spirit 
with water through salvation or you get baptized with fire. Jesus will kill us through baptism either to raise us up in Romans 6 or to judge us as it is here in Luke 3.17. John is saying, look, the one that is coming can be your Savior or He can be your judge. That's precisely what John the Baptist is saying when he says that the one who is coming will gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then notice how quickly now John the Baptist fades from view in Luke's Gospel since he's now shown us that John did what God had called him to do. His role was carried out. And in verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. There will always be the attempt to silence the gospel by the powers that be. We're reminded very abruptly, aren't we, that this is happening within real history. While John is doing this, there's a Tetrarch that doesn't like what he's saying because as a part of what John was proclaiming, he had called out Herod for being the incestuous womanizer that he was. And Herod didn't like that. But the good news had been proclaimed. John has fulfilled his ministry. The way has been prepared. And now the Messiah is about to take center stage. You and I stand this morning on this side of the coming of Jesus. There's no preparatory baptism required. Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness for us in His baptism and crucifixion, His resurrection, and at Pentecost when He sent His Spirit. God swung the axe of judgment across the forest of the world. It is finished in the sense that now everything, all roads end in Christ for every single person. All those who receive the gift of justification through the work of Jesus are fully accepted. Now, I talk about grace a lot. At least I hope I do. I talk about how our good works will not save us. Our good works don't do anything to merit us approval before God. So Tony, are you going to change all that this morning? No. Not at all. It is possible that we would get it in our heads from that that we have nothing of which we need to repent. Nothing that still needs washed away. I wonder for how many the attitude is, look, let the second coming happen. We're ready to go. Like what happens to everybody else, Ray, you know, that's, that's their business. And most of us were probably raised in the church. Most of us probably were raised in this very church. So we have all kinds of association with righteousness in our lives that we can point to. We're here, aren't we? We're trying. We prayed the prayer. We're all set. There's just one little problem with that mindset. And it, it comes out a lot of times in the way people, as you hear me talk about a lot, push back against the preaching of grace. When they say, but don't we need to do good works, I always want to ask, and precisely what works do you mean? What works do you think in particular would prove that you have salvation since that's what's at issue in the question? Yeah, it's all by grace, but you need to prove it by the way that you live. 
The evidence is the change. Not the cross, the change. And isn't that what John the Baptist is saying here? We find evidence of the problem in Paul's preaching, actually, believe it or not. He says in Acts 26, or the text says in Acts 26, 20, when he tells, Paul tells King Agrippa that he declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Same type of thing that John the Baptist is saying. So the command remains there. We are called, we are called to bear fruits in keeping with repentance, to perform deeds in keeping with repentance. And if we think of repentance as the one thing that we can do, then we will read that verse as, I need to prove it by the way that I live. Right? I need to keep doing something that I started doing when I repented. We are commanded to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Well, what does that mean exactly? You need to know, first of all, to answer that question, well, what is repentance? Where does it come from? What causes it? Because our deeds, our works, are supposed to make it look like there's been this thing called repentance in us. Well, beloved, let me ask you, is repentance a work that we do to accomplish or merit salvation? No, it isn't. Repentance is the result of the kindness of God on us. Repentance is faith in God for salvation. It is to be turned by God's grace from self to God in confession of sin. So this bearing fruits that are in keeping with repentance doesn't mean that now you have to prove with works what took place by grace. Nobody repents of their own power or their own will. It's a gift of God to turn in faith to Christ. When, when does faith stop being a gift and become a work that you and I are in charge of keeping or maintaining? When does the Scripture say that faith stops being a gift and becomes your responsibility? Bearing fruits and keeping with repentance is not to prove something. It's to proclaim something. Look at the text. It's to demonstrate something. Well, what is it demonstrating? Well, you would look at the works to know what it's demonstrating. It is to be a demonstration of the grace that brought us to repentance. Apparently, as Paul describes repentance in Romans 2 verse 4, therefore, the fruits John the Baptist speaks of here relate to how we treat our neighbors not about some kind of testimony or case we present to God to show that we're really saved. Do you notice that? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. For whom? For who? To who? Oh, beloved, not God. Your neighbor. Jesus handles the business between you and God. Everyone's always trying to clean themselves up and make themselves good through their good works. And the Scripture teaches good works look away from the self entirely. Since the self is already justified by Christ for the believer. 
the fruits that show repentance has actually taken place are like that. They do that because they do the same thing to our neighbors that God has done to us. Loves us and serves us with grace and mercy and love that is unlike any other love. That's how we've been treated. That's how we were made able to repent. God shed His grace on us and turned us to Him by a gift. Listen to these things again. In other words, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Well, man, what in the world would that look like? How much do I have to shape myself up to prove that I'm a child of God? Again, that's not the direction of the text at all. Verse 11. And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Little kids do that without the Holy Spirit. Right? Yeah. Everybody shares. So, you see how unremarkable it is? We're trying so hard to prove with all these great things that we're saved. And, and John the Baptist says, you would actually just care about other people. In other words, you're not going to be able to use that as evidence that you're saved because everybody does it. But once you've been set free, do you know what you want to do? You want to serve other people because you got the gift for free. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Really? That's a fruit in keeping with repentance? Like just don't steal? Right? I mean, so, so if Jesus came to the IRS, that's all he'd have to say? How about you not collect more than you should? Jesus had to come for that? Do you, beloved, do you see? Do you see? Bear fruits and keep it with repentance. Don't be selfish jerks. Christ has saved you. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. That's that's fruits in keeping with repentance? That makes you ready to receive the Messiah? As far as Israel is concerned, as they're hearing it? Whether you were a Jew or a Roman, the proclamation of your repentance was the same. The fruits you would bear in keeping with it were the same. It was fixed on others. When there had been true repentance, that is when sins have been forgiven, people are loved as the result. We no longer think only of ourselves and serve ourselves. If we have more, we give it away rather than hoard it. When we see someone suffering in the need, we meet the need as we are able. We don't use our positions of power to take advantage of others or hurt others. We don't get what we want by threats or lying. We live in contentment with what we have. That is fruit that is in keeping with repentance. Now, why? How? It shows that God has forgiven our sins and granted us His righteousness. We are truly saved and justified before God. And so now, we no longer need to live for ourselves, but can do as Jesus did and give our lives away for others. Now, come back and ask the question again. Okay, 
Why exactly did the way need prepared in Israel in the first place? What's the problem here? Why are the people not like that? What was wrong? They had the law. They had the covenant. They prayed more than once a day. They read their Hebrew Bibles, what we know as the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, nonstop, religiously. They read it. They memorized it. They taught it. What was the problem? How did John the Baptist know this refining fire needed to sweep through Israel? Because those in the religious establishment, because they thought they were righteous, had not taught the people to love their neighbor. That's it. There was no mercy being shown. And if there is no mercy, the way to Jesus is closed. When we are obsessed then with our own righteousness, our own standing, our own performance, we become selfish, hateful, self-absorbed, self-consumed, self-serving people who are so fixated on themselves and their own works that they are horribly unprepared to meet Jesus. And John the Baptist comes to say to them, you need baptized for the forgiveness of sins. You need to die and be brought to life. You think that because you've minded yourself that you're already righteous, when in fact, if you were righteous, which remember, only God can make you by grace through faith, your concern, your main concern would be for others. Nothing proclaims what God has done for us in Christ more clearly than when we are extending grace and mercy to others, especially to our enemies. And what Christian has that as their major concern? Have I served my neighbor enough? Have I loved my neighbor enough? Am I actively attempting to love and serve my enemies? Those are the questions, beloved, because that is what God has done to us. And what have we made all this about? Your own personal growth your own personal works, you, 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 me, 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 I, 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 I. Who uses that, how they're loving their neighbor, to determine whether or not we can call ourselves righteous? We can't do it. We know we can't do it, so we create laws that we can obey and rules that we can keep, that we would have been able to keep whether we were Christians or not. Because there are things we just don't like and don't care for. And so we create laws and rules based on those things we already feel. That's the danger of cultural Christianity. Right? We use soft law, milk toast law. I don't cuss. I don't listen to rock and roll. I don't see R-rated movies. I don't drink. I vote conservative. I go to church every week to at least one of the three services. You can't expect me to go to all three. That's ridiculous. Me, 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 I, 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 I. That's where we're looking all the time. Why is the light of the church so dim in America? How has society gone so far off the rails? You know, this is the fruit of fundamentalism. This is the fruit of focusing all our Christianity on ourselves and our own works of righteousness and not giving a rip about our neighbor. Jesus is not clearly seen. The way is not prepared. When he says, I've justified you by grace through faith, and we say, thank you, now I'm going to live to justify myself.
none of those types of rules prove anything about whether or not faith is real. Why not? Because none of it demonstrates the grace of God for sinners. Right? All of that stuff, that's about me and what I can do. No, we, we are most clearly demonstrating that we have repented of our sins when we are serving our neighbors like Jesus has served us. God doesn't need anything from you, beloved. Nothing. That's not why you're called to good works. Because He wants you to prove that you were worth it or prove that you're up to it. Jesus didn't just live for you. He died for you. As Romans 6 describes it, you have to die in Christ. That you that tries so hard has to be killed. And a new you has to be raised in its place. If we think we've been called to good works as proof of something or to earn something that we've already been given but we don't we, we say that but we don't live it because you can't say out of one side of your mouth listen this is all free it's a gift and out of the other side of your mouth but if you don't pay enough back then you don't have the gift is it free or not and we're so afraid of the freedom that we think we'll protect it. Protect God from having His name defamed if we create more laws than even He gave. Or create our own. That's not what God has required of us. It's, it's not. You, beloved, what God has required of us is to love our neighbors as ourselves. And look, nobody in here can do that. Nobody in here is up to that. Jesus is, and Jesus did it. And what He's saying is, when I justify you and wash you clean and forgive you of all your sins and grant you all of my righteousness, all of that stuff has been taken care of. Now you fulfill the law when you just do these things. These types of things. Because I've done it all. So nobody needs to be counting for anybody else and stacking up accomplishments for anybody else. Right? I, 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 like, don't plan on the final day of judgment to present to God a basket of proof. Do you think He doesn't already know? Where does God look when He wants to know for sure that you are saved? Beloved, to a cross and an empty tomb in which you didn't hang, and in which you didn't sleep dead for three days. Be at peace and love your neighbors. We don't bear fruits in keeping with repentance to prove to God that we're really saved. He already knows. We bear fruit in keeping with repentance as a testimony to the grace of God that we've so freely received. So as we close this morning, don't start thinking, do I have enough fruit? Do I have enough fruit? Am I really saved? That won't make you go to your neighbor. You think, I don't have time to do that. i gotta got to get my life in order. No. If your fruit is lacking, if you know when you read that, I don't do that, my fruit is lacking. Okay, okay. 
what do you do? You come back to what Christ has done for you. You come back to what Christ has done for you. You sit at the foot of the cross for a while. And you just look. You listen to what Jesus has said. Do you remember in Luke, we'll get there, and I'll say all this stuff again when we do, and in some way, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember why Jesus told that parable? And some, wanting to justify themselves, Lord, who is my neighbor? So, Jesus tells them the parable of the Good Samaritan, where it is he who served. And then right away, you're in Mary and Martha's house. And Jesus is there. And what is Martha doing? Working. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. Get, get the food ready. Get the stuff ready. It's Jesus. You show the proper respect for Jesus. You, you do the right stuff for Jesus. Like if you lay Him out a nice table, you please God? Like that's all He came to do? Was clean up our manners? We're, we're, we're destined for hell and death and condemnation. It's going to take more than getting really serious about being a good person. Muslims do that. Buddhists do that. Hindus do that. Hare Krishnas do that. What is this? Martha, relax. I'm here. Sit down. I want to serve you. Do what your sister is doing. What's she doing? Just sitting and listening. Well, if we, but if we do that, then nobody's going to volunteer. Let it go. Just listen to Him. Do you know what the good portion is? Just sit down and listen to Jesus. Jesus isn't scared that nothing will get done. No, you know what will get done? The stuff He wants to get done. We're all doing the stuff we think that needs to get done so we can feel righteous. So we're only serving ourselves. We only do the stuff that we do for ourselves. I gotta do this or I'm not righteous. I gotta do this or I'm not good enough. Do you see? Those aren't the fruits in keeping with repentance. The fruits in keeping with repentance are I will love and serve rather than taking, I'll give. Rather than hoarding, I'll give. Right? It's like, well, I can't. I mean, I can't, I can't do that. Ask God to reveal the finished work of Jesus Christ for you that was done to you again. Ask Him again. You're not getting resaved. That never needs to happen. In this moment, this morning, if you feel conviction, the law of God has done precisely what He intended it to do. It has shown you your sin. And that you and I are not up to doing what we've been called to do. We, we State-sponsored welfare has gone off the rails. So when we hear like, if I, you mean if, if give them both my coats? Both of my coats? I worked for them, they didn't. No, return to the Lord. Pray that He would turn you and you will be turned. I brought up what I did about welfare to say we naturally recoil against any idea of that. But what's happening here, this is the heart overflowing because it's been set free. 
So if I want there to be the good works that are in keeping with repentance, I need to believe that I've been set free. The law is not condemning us so that we would try harder to keep it. But so we would be undone. Do just the opposite and cry out for the perfect righteousness of another. For he will always give it. He will always give it. I'm I'm standing somehow righteous before God Almighty right now because of Christ. In Christ. I'm acceptable to God right now. This Tony Romano that that has had this week, I stand righteous in Christ. And if it ever changes, ever, if he ever says, now today, you prove it. I'm out. I'm dead. That's how God sets us free, beloved. He unties our hands to serve others. And when, through the work of Christ for us, God softens our hearts, then our neighbors will know that Jesus was healed. Jesus was healed. Jesus passed by. That's when they'll know. When you and I believe the gospel. Because do you know what the practical effect of that will be anyway? We will be so busy loving and serving our neighbor and forgetful of ourselves that they will have to ask, what is this? And then Peter will make sense when he says that what you're going to have to defend about your faith is your hope. Because you're giving everything away as though your hope is entirely somewhere else. And no, you don't need to go home today and sell everything you have and give it to the poor, but you sure could and you'd be okay. The gospel bears fruit because it is the word of God for us and for our neighbor. Would you stand, please? I want you to have peace, dearly beloved of God. I want you to be at peace. I want you to believe the gospel. And I want me to believe the gospel. And I want me to have peace. Christ is for you. It's finished. Receive it. Receive it.